But this morning, we're continuing in our theme of fruit bearing, and we're going to be looking at the subject of gospel witness. Gospel witness. And as Harry's been teaching the last few weeks, part of the fruit bearing of the good soil is the fruit of people. People who are saved or people who are benefited by your influence, by your life, and by your testimony, by Christ in you. This is the action fruit. And um, before we begin, maybe a little bit of a personal confession. Uh, This is an area of my Christian life that I'd really like to see growth in. Uh, many of you, as I even look out here uh, at my friends, many of you are far farther ahead and down the road of everyday gospel proclamation uh, and gospel courage and gospel boldness than the guy teaching this morning. Uh, and I look to many of your lives as a necessary stimulation and encouragement um, to be on mission. And so I just want to say thank you for that example. And hopefully this morning we can communicate some things that are beneficial to you, but just know that you have been beneficial to me as I look to grow in this area of my life. Um, Just actually a few days ago, uh, I was kicking myself for not being a little bit more prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in me, as Scripture calls us to. Um, I, um, <clears throat> we live in a neighborhood sort of at the end of a cul-de-sac where everybody tends to gather. Um, we live in a neighborhood where everybody walks their dog. Everybody walks their dog. Everybody except us. Boxer, so he's a big boy, and we've had him for about 10 years, and uh, we named him after the canon of Scripture. So his name has some significance uh, there, um, just reflecting our commitment to the Bible. Um, and we didn't know this when we named the dog. It wasn't like this was something we planned. Um, but we didn't know that this would become such a uh, strategy for gospel opportunity. Because every time somebody comes and we're talking dogs, they ask, what's your dog's name? And we say, canon, and dog people want to know what? How did he get that name? How did he get that name, Canon? So if you're looking for a strategy for ministry opportunity, just name your dog something cryptically spiritual. Uh, so people have to, I don't know, atonement or something here, atonement. <laughs> um, and uh, you'll have all kinds of opportunity. Um, but I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that question in 10 years. Why did you name your dog Canon, and uh, a few days ago, I got them from the resident far, far left liberal on the block. Um, and uh, I know this because we've, we've had some conversations, but also it's, he's not hiding it. It's like if he's not wearing a Bernie Sanders t-shirt, it's a I Love Planned Parenthood t-shirt. If it's not that, it's I Believe in Science t-shirt. You know, he's, he's that guy. And um, that guy asked me a few days ago, Canon, how'd you come up with that? like that sinking moment. Go, no. How's this going to go? Right. Um, So I thought about it for a second. And I said, well, um, we named him after we named him after the Bible. And um, then ensued what silence. Um, And um, and I I think what I did, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think what I did is I ended up making sort of a joke to get out of the uncomfortableness of that moment. And then I went inside feeling like, man, I just missed a golden opportunity to expand on that and to um, and to live on mission with this with this man who obviously needs the Lord in our neighborhood. And I wonder if you've had experiences like that too. Um, 
But I want to start this morning with a man who actually seized the moment, I'll bet, in a very different circumstance. It was a a man by the name of John Harper. Uh, And maybe you know John Harper, maybe you know the story of John Harper, but I'd like to begin with just reading you a little excerpt about the end days of his life. One of the passengers aboard the Titanic was a godly pastor from Scotland by the name of John Harper. Harper had recently spent three months ministering at the Moody Church in Chicago. He had not been back in Britain long when he was asked to return. He quickly made arrangements for himself and his six-year-old daughter, daughter, Nana, to return via the Titanic. The Titanic struck the iceberg on April 14, 1912. Harper wrapped his daughter in a basket, told her that she would see him again one day, and watched her safely board one of the lifeboats. And his daughter actually did end up surviving uh, that horrible day. One survivor survivor distinctly remembered hearing Harper shout, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Harper knew that believers were ready to die, but the unsaved were not ready. Harper then ran along the decks, pleading with people to turn to Christ. He called upon the Titanic's orchestra to play Nearer, My God, to Thee. Gathering people around him on deck, he then knelt down and with holy joy in his face, raised his arms in prayer. As the ship began to sink, he jumped into the icy waters and swam frantically to all he could reach, beseeching them to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. John Harper then sank into the depths and passed into the Lord's presence. He was 39 years old. Four years, Webb stood up in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and gave the following testimony. I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he said, are you saved now? (laughs) (laughs) No, I said, I I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, he went down, and there alone in the night, with, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. It's an amazing story. I just want to ask you a question this morning. And the question is, who does that? I mean, what type of person, what kind of man does that? Wraps up his six-year-old daughter. This hits kind of close to home. We have seven, five, and two. At home, he wraps her up, puts her in a basket, says, honey, I'm going to see you later down the road, and then goes frantically running around a sinking ship telling people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Who does that? Well, it's really kind of a simple answer. A person with a conviction. A person with deep conviction. Actually, convictions about many things. man with convictions about Christ and about salvation and about sin and about hell and about heaven, and about people, 
and a man who has convictions about gospel witness. A man who has Romans 10 stapled to his heart, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, as we just heard from our brothers? Preach unless they are sent, as it is written, you know the rest, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And what I fear, guys, in my own life is the temptation to just get too comfortable. I don't know about you, um, but I would assume that this is the case maybe for a lot of us at Grace Community Church, and especially for those of us who maybe um, are in the ministry orbits of Grace Community Church, is we have so much depth of biblical community, and maybe you don't. I don't want to assume that. But I would say probably a lot of us have a depth of biblical community that most Christians in the world don't experience. And that's a wonderful thing. David himself in Psalm 16 says that the saints in the land are the excellent ones, the majestic ones, in whom are all his delight. And we say amen to that. And it's a great benefit. Um, I know I go to work with my friends. Part of my job is to sit in chapel and hear expository preaching three times a week. It's like, who gets to do that? Um, and, but I think there's a potential danger. We'd never go on offense. We'd sit around and we'd condemn liberal politicians and complain about liberal policies, become very polished at all the ways the world is going to hell in a handbasket, communicating those, but then never actually get around to going into all the world and making disciples, living a lifestyle of gospel witness. And that's a fear of mine. And I think it's helpful to be reminded this morning even that we always, guys, we always gather in order to scatter, do we not? We always gather to take courage from one another so that we can go out and fight for truth and proclaim Christ and plead with people. Christ gave us a mission. The mission is this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That's the mission. The first part of that is evangelism. The first part of that mission is evangelism. And hear hear me, if we fail to have a missional mindset as a church and we gather every Sunday and we benefit from that fellowship, maybe we gather throughout the week and we benefit from that fellowship and we get lots of head knowledge and we have great teaching, but if we never actually then leave and have a heart for the lost and dying world, there's a word for that, and it's called a failure. It's failure. Because a missionless, and hear me closely, missionless Christianity is worthless Christianity. And as many will attest to, a missionless Christianity actually ultimately becomes a very boring Christianity. It's worthless and it's boring. And scripture would attest to this. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what I would like to do this morning in our brief time together is two things. I want to look at the Apostle Paul's, how he approached the mission, how he approached gospel witness. And I want to look at two aspects of that. So if you're taking notes, The first aspect we're going to look at is Paul's passion. This is his heart and the emotions that motivated him into fruitful ministry. And then the majority of our time will be spent on Paul's principles. 
So Paul's passion, number one, and Paul's principles for a life of gospel witness. So turn with me to Romans 9. We're going to start in Romans 9 real briefly, and then the remainder of our time will be spent in 2 Corinthians chapters 2 through 6. And let me pray while you're turning, just to ask the Lord to continue to shepherd our time here. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you gave us a mission. And what a joy it is to enter into that mission alongside your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit to seek and save the lost. And Lord, it's a lifestyle. We would be about this every moment of every day. So please give us the strength to do that. Help us to align our lives uh, with the things that foster and cultivate um, passion for the lost world and also the things that promote influence um, to them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So look with me at the first three verses of Romans chapter 9. I want you to see Paul's heart and Paul's passion here. This is what Paul writes. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now just pause there for a second. Paul, why are you repeating yourself three times? It's as if he's doubling down on something, and it's as if he is about to say something that he just thinks that we're going to think is so crazy, and we're going to maybe respond to it as if it's hyperbole. So he goes, I am telling the truth in Christ. Okay, Paul, what do you want to tell us? I am not lying. Okay, Paul, that's the same thing. You just said the exact same thing two times. And then he goes on again. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. All right, Paul, what are you about to tell us that is so crazy that we're going to be tempted to not believe you or to put it in the category of hyperbole? Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. That I have great sorrow. That word great there in the Greek is megas. I have mega sorrow. And unceasing, that's unrelenting, unremitting, incessant grief, anguish, pain of body, of mind and of body. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul here is obviously talking about the Jews, right? He's talking about the Israelites, his countrymen, who have many of whom who had rejected the gospel. And Paul felt great pain and great anguish over that reality that consumed his heart and motivated him into evangelistic ministry and to evangelistic prayer. He had great sorrow over these people and how they had rejected the gospel. And he even goes as far as to say, and here's the unbelievable part. He goes as far as to say, I could wish that I were separated from Christ if my countrymen, the Jews, would be found in Christ. Now that's pretty crazy. Because if anybody knew what it meant to be separated from Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. Don't skip over this. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I would willingly throw myself into a godless eternity 
so that others may experience eternal life and happiness. That was the depth of the apostles' conviction and the depth of the apostles' love for his countrymen. And just think about that in your own personal life. I mean, maybe. I mean, that's a tough. I mean, maybe I'd do that for Lisa and my kids. Like, yeah, if they, if I could ensure that they were on their way to heaven, I'd willingly, uh, you know, separate myself from Christ. But I'd be hard pressed to do that for the liberal neighbor that I just talked about earlier. Right? But Paul says, Paul says, I'm willing. I want to be. I would be cut off. I would throw myself into a godless eternity if these people who I love. I could ensure that they would spend forever in heaven with Christ. That was the apostle's heart. Charles Spurgeon famously wrote, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over, leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of Corinthians 5:20 and 2 Corinthians 6:1. He's going to use the Greek words we or the Greek word we in tra- translate implore and appeal, which means to summon someone to something, to beseech, to urge, to continually cheer and to encourage something. Guys, Christians are persuaders. Christians are implorers. Christians are appealers. We appeal to people to be reconciled to God through Christ. Actively, we do those things. This was Paul's heart, mega sorrow, unceasing anguish. And I think we've got to start to cultivate that same sort of passion and heart for people if we're going to be effective witnesses. We've got to somehow, as we look to scripture, as we think on the gospel, as we think about the consequences of unbelief, we've got to cultivate the same sort of heart that the apostle Paul cultivated that could say, I'd rather be separated so that you would be found in Christ. And there's a part of all this, and I think this is important to say, I think this is part of what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, part of that is obviously your personal experience of battling sin or difficulties that come into our lives because of just living in a fallen world. But part of what Jesus is also saying in that beatitude on the Sermon on the Mount is there's a part of the Christian life that is just sober. It's sober because we grieve and we mourn for people who we love in our families, in our communities, and in the world that reject the free offer of the Creator. We mourn over that. There's a sobriety to the Christian life. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. You know, 166,324. It's almost two people per second that enter into eternity. So I'll just say this morning, what you do today as you go to in and out on your way home, maybe that's just our family every Sunday, um, what you do today matters. What you do now matters. What we do as we traffic in the just regular rhythms and patterns of our life matters. That's Paul's heart. Flip over to 2 Corinthians with me, would you please? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to look at some of the principles that Paul employed for a life on mission, a life of gospel witness. And I think if we begin to train some of these evangelistic muscles together, 
then we'll be on the road to real impact and influence in the eternal sphere where it matters most. But we do have to work out. We have to put these things into practice if we're going to have that fruit of people that Harry has been talking about in the good soil. So here are five principles, if you'd like to take notes. Five principles from the life of Paul, 2 Corinthians 2 through 6, for a life of mission, a life of witness. Number one, do not peddle the word of God. Do not peddle the word of God. Look down at uh, verse 17 of chapter 2. Paul writes this, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And what does it mean to peddle something? To peddle something is to whittle it down, to whittle it down with your own opinions or your own prejudices. It's, it's, it has the idea of omitting certain things, glossing over certain critical information for the purpose of selling a product. That's the idea behind peddling something. So uh, the way that I think about this is we've all probably seen those drug commercials, right? And they go something like this. There's either a couple or an individual frolicking on the beach, like holding hands. It's, the mood is very peaceful. They're very smiley, right? They're happy. The, this beautiful music is playing. They're smiling. For two minutes, they're unpacking all the wonderful benefits of this new drug that has come onto the market. And then something happens at the end of the commercial. You remember what happens? <laughs> Some tape boy in the back hits fast forward, okay? He hits the fast forward button, and all of a sudden, they start talking a million miles an hour. And what are they telling us? Yeah, yes, all the potential side effects that they don't really want you to hear, but have happened as people have tried their new drug. Things like certain cancers have occurred. You might die. You might grow an additional arm out of your back. But it's all very, very fast, right? Now, I I don't consider myself to be the brightest crown in the box. But I'm not sure I want to deal with my shoulder pain by dying today, okay? right? So they they speed it up, and and the idea is they want to gloss over it because they want you to buy their new drug. Also, they don't want to get sued. You know, that's definitely a a thing. But they're glossing over it. They're peddling their product. Paul says, do not peddle the word of God. And in chapter 4, if you flipped over there, chapter 4, verse 2, we see him communicate this stinging craftiness, or here it is, adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, some translations probably say the open statement of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So instead of tampering with the word of God, we give the truth in the open statement, in an open statement with clarity, so as to commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's the full gospel of God that has the power to save. Can you say amen? Is the full gospel of God. It's all the truths of the scripture. That's why we don't eliminate or soften difficult or culturally uncomfortable topics. I was reading one commentator uh, recently who said modern evangelicals have the word of God. If you look back in chapter 2, though, Paul tells us in verse 17 that many people actually will. 
many people, for we are not like many, he says, peddling the word of God. We are not like many who peddle the word of God. What do they do? Well, they make choices about what to emphasize and what not to emphasize. They'll pick and choose their favorite doctrines or their favorite attributes of God. They make decisions about what they say based on their perceived, the perceived palatability of certain Bible texts. Right? This was literally the whole strategy of the seeker-sensitive movement. Let's make uh, uh, unbelievers as comfortable as possible. So let's highlight certain things. Let's not talk about other things. But a truth for you this morning is just this. If God put it in the Bible, it's both necessary and important. If it is in the Bible, it's necessary and important. And if we're going to have a life on mission, you don't tamper with the word of God. And I get it. This like, this is Grace Community Church, right? This is like our bread and butter. <laughs> we go and we listen to Dr. MacArthur, and this is what we do. But I wanted to work it down into the individual, uh, our individual and personal lives, to not tamper with the word of God, to not peddle the word of God, um, to not mess with it. Um, instead, what do we do? Paul says, we speak as from sincerity, as from God, in Christ, in the sight of God, what does that mean? Well, simply this. We understand ourselves to be nothing more than an emissary. We're a mouthpiece. We're a courier. We're a messenger. The message is actually not ours to manipulate or adulterate or add to or subtract from. What we do is we take the message from the messenger and we give it to the person he wants to give it to, signed and sealed. That's who we are. One commentator says we don't speak on our own name or act in our own authority. We don't communicate our own opinions or make any personal demands, but simply what we have been told or commanded, we then say. That's what a Christian does who has an effective gospel witness. They do not peddle the word of God. And look, I'm not trying to offend anybody unnecessarily, but what I'm not going to do is water down the word of God and worry about how that's going to be received by you. I'm going to try to eliminate any unnecessary distractions or obstacles, but what I'm not going to do is change the eternal word of God. We will not peddle the word of God, principle number one. Principle number two, never lose sight of the glory of the message and the privilege of being a minister of reconciliation. Principle number two, never lose sight of the glory of the message and the privilege of being a minister of reconciliation. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 through 12. 3, 7 through 12. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone, this is the commandments that came to Moses on Mount Sinai. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, it did come with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, and it was, much more that which remains is in glory. And here's a great verse to highlight in your Bible, if that's what you do. Verse, chap, uh, verse 12. Therefore, 
having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. What is Paul saying? Well, Paul's saying we are ministers of Jesus Christ under the new covenant. And under the old covenant, the law of Moses came, or excuse me, the law of God came to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it had glory and it was wonderful, but it was in fact the ministry of death. It just showed people that they could not actually meet the standards of a holy God. It would kill you. The law would kill you because you could never live up to it. And it was a wonderful, and it was a message that had glory. But if that message of death had glory, how much more the message of life and reconciliation and acceptance, how much more the message of alien righteousness that you get attributed to yourself through the work and person of Jesus Christ. So you can say to that person, would you like to have your sins removed as far as the east is from the west today? Would you like to have peace with God today? Would you like to be accepted by God? Would you like your sin and shame to be enfolded into the grace and the goodness of God? You know what? You can have that today. What a message. What a message. What a privilege to be an ambassador of that message. It's not the message of death in Mount Mount Sinai. we, We know even if an animal came onto that mountain, what would happen to that animal? struck down, killed. I like to joke with, I'm the dean of men at Masters University. I have a counterpart named Brianna Harris, who's the dean of women. I always joke with her that she's Mount uh, Sinai and I'm Mount Zion. She's, uh, she's law and I'm grace. Um, so um, that may or may not be true. I'm not sure. Um, but if any animal would even touch Mount Sinai, it would be smitten by God. That is the holy, that's the message of the holiness of God. But when we see in the Psalms is that all men come to Mount Zion. All men come to Mount Zion. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to provide a way of escape to the world. What a message. And it's those New Testament, New Covenant promises that made Paul, by how often we hear stories from people just, passing by, walking their dog, want to talk of just burdened hearts, whether it be the consequences of sin or it be some just terrible life circumstance living in a fallen world. People in our neighborhood, I don't know what your neighborhood is like, but I don't even know your name yet, and you're sitting talking to me about all this and that and what's going on in your life. People need the hope of Jesus Christ. They need him. And you are a emissary of God to them. And remember, none of us have deserved that privilege of being a minister of reconciliation, right? In chapter 4, Paul's going to say we, we receive this strictly by the mercy of God. He's going to go on to say we're just like earthen vessels. We're insufficient for the task without God's help. But what an unbelievable privilege to be a conduit of amazing grace to people. What a message and what a privilege to find ourselves where we are and to be able to enter into the very mission of Christ on earth to seek and save the lost. And I was reminded actually by my brother this past Thursday that it's the one good thing that we can't do in heaven that we get to do right now, right? Is seek and save the lost. 
It's a wonderful privilege. Number three, proclaim Christ as Lord with unwavering clarity of conviction. Proclaim Christ as Lord with unwavering clarity of conviction. Chapter four, verse five says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Elsewhere, Paul's gonna say, we preach Christ crucified. It's the plain and unadulterated gospel of grace, which is revealed supremely in the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that quickens a man's conscience. It's that message. It's Jesus Christ. It's him crucified. It's him risen on the behalf of sinners that alone strikes home to a man's conscience. So what do we know or what do we learn from that? Well, we learn this. Our primary business then as we live a life on mission ought to be drawing attention to Christ drawing attention to his saving work on our behalf. And and let me just say this, apologetics can be helpful, but it's not the same as preaching Jesus Christ as Lord to a person. I taught apologetics for a number of years at the high school level, and I I appreciate that, and I, I, I love that. I love to read about apologetics and different things, but it is not the same as drawing people's attention to Christ. And if all we're doing is these apologetics that circle around the main thing, we're not doing it correctly. We need to preach Christ. We need to preach him crucified. We need to tell people that their sins can be forgiven by his saving work on the cross, that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He's the savior who liberates mankind from guilt and the power of sin. And he's the Lord to whom all total allegiance and all obedience belong. Look with me at chapter 5, and for the sake of time, we'll go, we'll go fast through this. Go uh, to verse um, 18. Let's start in verse 18 of chapter 5. Listen to how Paul talks about Christ. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has, a, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And then the greatest gospel verse in the New Testament my humble opinion, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become... I had to work a basketball illustration in here somewhere. I just didn't feel right about not doing it. So uh, a few months ago, uh, LeBron James, I know this is Kobe land, so forgive me. Um, LeBron James broke the all-time NBA scoring record. You know this, right? Some of you are like, nope, don't care. Um... But he did. He, he is now the, he has scored the most points in NBA history. Um, so he, he broke that record. I can't remember what month uh, it was, maybe in the spring at some time. But uh, the first time out that happened, they went to commercial break. Nike was ready to capitalize on this moment. Right? And what happened was Nike comes on with an advertisement. And the advertisement is essentially, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. It's really interesting if you go back to the commercial. It's caked in gospel language. It's got gospel music playing. LeBron James is the chosen one who fulfilled all these basketball prophecies. He is the king, 
right? That everybody needs to bow the knee down. He's got the crown on. Maybe you've seen people who have shirts that say witness with a little check mark right here. That's what they're doing. That's what they're talking about, right? And the whole idea was we have all been witnesses to LeBron James's greatness. He's the kid from Akron, Ohio, who had all these expectations. And you know what he's done? He's met them all and he's exceeded them all, right? So Nike says, we are all witnesses, and we better go out and testify to the greatness of LeBron James. And, you know, that may or may not be true for you this morning that you witnessed the greatness of LeBron James, but what is true for every Christian is that you have witnessed the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the goodness of his grace, the beauty of his character, his gentleness, his kindness, his long-suffering, his love, his mercy, his atoning death on your behalf, and we are all witnesses of that glory. We are all witnesses of that king. It's him that we proclaim. Jesus crucified, proclaim it with unwavering clarity of being to please God and not men. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. What motivates missional living? Well, it's when we look towards heaven. It's the eschatology of the gospel that gives us courage. If we want to have a missional life, we have to start to lift our eyes up into the hills. We've got to start to understand that we actually are citizens of a better country. This is not our home. We've got to begin to be less fascinated with all the toys and trinkets and entertainments of the world. We need to look to the hills, and we need to go to that great day, that Bema seat of Christ, where we will be recompensed for the work that we do here. So we begin to have a fixation on that day, that world to come. Jonathan Edwards said that he was trying in one of his resolutions to get as much happiness as he could for himself in the eternal life. And that motivated him into meaningful ministry. And I think living by faith, guys, is an acquired taste. The more that you do of it, the more that you want to do of it. Why? Because you see the, world, the Lord work through your inadequacies. This is a matter of intentionally putting yourself in positions that are uncomfortable, situations that are stretching. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. We have to put ourselves into positions where our faith is tested, our faith is stretched. I know I don't have that $200 to give you right now. My 2010 Honda Odyssey is in the shop again. That may be a little too close to home. Um... And I really don't have, but you know what? You need it. So we'll figure it out. God will provide. I really don't want to enter into that conversation with you right now because I'm tired and I want to go home. But you know what? You need the truth of the gospel. Actually in positions that will stretch me last, but certainly not least, determine to put no obstacle in anybody's way. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 6 very quickly. 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10 determined to put no obstacle in anybody's way. And we do this by what we are willing to endure and what we exude. Look at verse three, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. And here's what you endure in much endurance 
in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. And here's what you exude. Verse 6, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You know what? People will be looking for an excuse not to believe the gospel. And you know exactly where they're going to look for that excuse? your life. So we need to be committed to helping each other, never be a stumbling block, avoid giving anybody the opportunity to make our conduct the ground of rejecting the gospel. We endeavor to put no obstacle in everybody's way. Okay, a summary real quickly. Do not peddle the word of God. Never lose sight of the glory of the message and the privilege it is to be a communicator of it. Proclaim Christ as Lord and point others to him. So we are not pointing to conservative politics. We are not pointing to conservative heroes. We are not pointing to In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A as as wonderful as those places are. We are pointing to Christ. We preach Christ. Walk by faith, not by sight, intentionally putting yourself in uncomfortable and stretching situations to strengthen your evangelistic muscles and look to heaven, your true home, and then finally, determine to put no obstacle in anyone's way. And if we help each other do that, I think we will see the fruit of people in our lives. And just remember, guys, we serve a Savior who was the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. Of course, he was no friend of sin ever or anywhere close to it. But he was the friend of sinners. And there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 people who think that they don't need repentance. So we need to cultivate that type of heart for the lost and dying world. And I pray for myself in that category, and I pray for you all, my friends, in that category this morning. So why don't we just close in prayer, ask the Lord to help us with that, and we will move on. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the the moments we shared this morning. We want to um, be faithful in this category of gospel witness. We, we want to, Lord, we recognize, I can just maybe speak for personal experience, to recognize oftentimes uh, we can be cowardly. We can be um, not as bold as we, sure, we should. So please give us strength. Help us to take courage from one another and help us to go into all the world and make disciples for Christ, knowing that this is a world headed to hell. But that's why you have placed us here to be ambassadors of reconciliation, ambassadors of Christ. Help us take that identity seriously this morning. And as we go about the rest of our business that the day will hold, we trust you for every and uh, all activity that we will uh, endure today. And we pray that your name will be honored and glorified as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.